Well, again, it's an uh, honor to be with you guys this morning. It's, uh, it's good for my soul uh, to worship with you. Uh, so, so thanks for having me this morning. So I thought uh, for this, this Mission Sunday uh, that we would consider together uh, some aspects of the church's mission. And I want to use part of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus to do that. So if you don't know Ephesians, uh, this book, I mean, many people say Ephesians more so than any other book in the New Testament is a book that focuses on what the church is and who the church is. And uh, today we're going to be looking at this particular part at the end of chapter 1. Paul is, it actually starts out, he's telling the church how he prays for them. And he says he gives thanks for them. uh, And then also that he asks God to give them a deep knowledge of three things, God's hope, God's inheritance, and God's power. So he asks that God would give them a deep knowledge of God's hope, that there is good news for the world, God's inheritance, that he has made them, that's language of adoption, that he's made them part of his family, and then God's power. And we're going to focus today particularly on that last thing that Paul asks God to give the Ephesian church deep knowledge of, God's power. But we're going to read the whole passage to get the context of it too. And my hope uh, for me and my, my hope for you as we look at that together is that God indeed would help us to appreciate how his power is at work in the church's mission how his power is at work in the church's mission. So I'll be reading from Ephesians 1, uh, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. It's given to us for our good. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to talk about that passage together. Father, I, uh, I want to pray for us in the same way that Paul said he prayed uh, for the Ephesian church, that you would, in fact, as Paul puts it, enlighten the eyes of our heart, that deep down you would help us to see the hope, the inheritance, and the power that you have toward us in Christ. God, you know uh, each one of us, you know the weeks that we've had, you know ways in which we might be in faith or out of faith, you know, the doubts that we struggle with, the things that weigh us down. And I pray this morning that you would encourage us as we consider your mission not only in our lives, but also your mission in this church and in this community and throughout the world, that you would give us hope in the power of Jesus. Pray that in his name. Amen. So Paul gets to this topic of power, which ends up being the one he focuses on in this passage down in in verse 19. 
And if you look at the language that he uses, and this is Paul, so it's, it's lots of really long sentences that take time uh, to, to soak in. But what he does there is he piles up four synonymous words for power. He says, it's hard to get this maybe in English, but in the original language, he says, the immeasurable greatness of his power, that's the first one, toward us who believe according to the working, that's the second, of his great or strong, that's the third, might. God's power, his working, his, his greatness, and his might. It's like Paul is saying God's power is so immeasurable that human language has to just strain and start repeating itself to even try to approximate what it is. And then Paul goes on from that point after he, he lists these four words to describe God's power to give one paramount example of it. One way that God's immeasurable power entered into history. One way that we have seen it at work in our world. And I don't know, what, if, before we look at that, what, what would you imagine if you did not know Scripture? If you had this immeasurably great power, how would you have that demonstrated in the world? You know, what I first think of is maybe that God would have like the, the biggest fireworks show ever. It would be launched into space we could see it all around the globe. It would be in the heavens. It would shake the earth when it was going on. It would cause mountains to move and, and tidal waves to sort of ripple around the whole globe. That it would be this colossal display of power. That it would be sensational. But what does Paul say is the paramount way that God has displayed his power? He raised Jesus from the dead. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul's saying the paramount display of God's power in our world is what we call the resurrection and the ascension. And it's worth pausing to think about that for a moment. How could that be? How could it be that God raising a dead human body and seating it with him in heaven, how could that be the paramount thing that God's power has done in our world? Well, to get at that, it is helpful to think about what is the human body in general. And what I want to say is this, is that to have a body is to have power in the world. To have a body is to have power in the world, right? If you think about it, it is because we have bodies that we can do things in the world, that we can affect things outside of ourselves. Imagine the opposite. Imagine if we didn't have bodies, if we were just sort of floating, flying spirits in the world. Well, we couldn't move objects around, right? We couldn't build homes. We couldn't cultivate land. We couldn't eat the food that was cultivated on the land. We couldn't even do what I'm doing right now, sending sound waves through the air so that you could hear what I am thinking. We could not communicate if we did not have bodies. We couldn't say hi. We couldn't touch each other or even see each other in all the ways that we do that now because we do have bodies. And this, of course, is what infants uh, have the pleasure of discovering as they get older and older, right? Um, I remember watching with their own kids their delight and sort of bewilderment as they would discover that this thing that occasionally flies in front of their, their face is something they actually can learn to control that it's actually part of them when they can move their arm. Or when infants learn to uh, not only move their arm around, but to start grabbing at things, and then to start throwing things. 
to start doing all the things that infants learn. They're learning that because they have a body, they can do things in the world. They have power in the world. And it's amazing. You see as kids discover this, and particularly when they get into the toddler years, and they they start performing the feats of of climbing up on countertops to get the chocolate that mommy and daddy said they couldn't have, and, and all the things that they do, when they do it, they have this look of pride in their face. Like, wow, look what I can do. Look, mommy. Look, daddy. Look what I can do. I can do something in the world. So that's what it means to have a body. It means that we can do things in the world. And what I want to say is the very fact that God has created us from the very beginning, the fact that He has created us with bodies, means that He has made us for mission. God has made us with bodies because He has made us to do things in the world outside of ourselves. You see this right at the very beginning. The seeds of that mission are back in the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1. The idea there is that God has made us in His image such that creation would see who we are. It would see, it would look at humanity and look at what humanity is doing in the world. And that upon looking at us and looking at what we are doing in the world, how we are using our bodies, what we are affecting in the world, that by looking at us, all creation would get a picture of who God is. That is the mission that we were designed for. And so a natural question when we consider that is, well, how is that mission going? When you uh, look at the world as it is now, when you look at uh, humanity as it is now, when you look at my life and your life, how is that going? I think we would all say uh, we see very mixed results, right? Human power in and of itself is a problematic thing in our world. And that's because we use our power, we use our bodies for good and beautiful things at times, but also for destructive and harmful things and ugly things at other times. That we also pursue, we do at times pursue true missions in our life, but also false missions as well. So the way that we as humanity are living out this mission is deeply problematic. It's deeply ambivalent. And you might think, well, God would just decide, okay, that didn't work out very well. I'm going to accomplish my mission in another way in this world, without human agency. But the stunning thing of the gospel, the the interrupting, interruptive thing about what God has done in Jesus Christ, is that He has said in most undeniable terms that He is not giving up on the human mission. That God, in fact, has so bound his own mission to the human mission that he raises Jesus' dead body from the grave and seats it with him in heaven. Now, that seating of Jesus in heaven, the point of that is not to get Jesus away from earth. The point of that is to put him in charge of the earth. You see, in Scripture, heaven is the control room of earth. It's where there is, in a sense, the, what, what is decided in heaven happens in earth. It is the control room of earth. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is where? As it is done in heaven. 
And if you look at what Paul is saying here, how specifically does Jesus accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven? Well, Paul says it twice, that his heavenly power, that Jesus' heavenly power is specifically directed toward us who believe. In other words, later, as he says, to the church, which is his body. Okay, now that was a lot, but did you catch it? Jesus' body in heaven does his mission through his body on earth. That is the church. That God's renewed mission with humanity started with one particular human, Jesus of Nazareth, his divine son made flesh, the Christ. It starts with that one particular human, and it spreads from him to all who follow him. So that, friends, is the, is the major point that Paul is making in this passage, that it is, in a sense, the, the high theology that he is giving us of what God has done. And that is the reason that you and I can be where we are this morning and be talking about something like the mission of the church. The mission of the church exists because of what God has done with Jesus, that he has raised his dead body from the grave and seated it with him in heaven. So if that is the reason that, that if that, that is the ground that the church's mission exists, what does that mission look like? And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about together. Now there is more than a, a lifetime of mystery to ponder in what Paul has been saying and how he is framing the church's mission here in Ephesians. That's why I think Paul prays specifically that the, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to be able to grasp how God's power is at work, that this is a lifelong project and we need the Spirit's help to be able to grasp it and to see it and to take it in. It's like the church is, is kind of like an infant that is starting to explore what it means to have the particular body that she has as a church, that we're starting as an infant to learn what we can do with the body of Christ and what we ought to do with the body of Christ. And so for the rest of our time, I want to consider three particular ways that the church ought to live out her mission. If I could even put it this way, I want to talk, think about three ways the church ought to, to carry herself, to, to carry her body as Christ's body. So the first one is this, that the church ought to live out her mission in hope that the church ought to live out her mission in hope. So that's the first thing that Paul tells the church in Ephesus, that he, he says he prays for them to know that they would know hope. I want you to think with me for a moment what that would mean for the church in Ephesus, for this particular church. So the city of, of Ephesus, the ancient city of Ephesus, it's uh, in what is now western Turkey. Uh, my wife and I actually used to, to live in Turkey. Um, so we've been there a number of times uh, to Ephesus. So the city of Ephesus was 2,000 years ago, at the time that this church existed, a seat of power. Ephesus was one of the, the great cities of the Roman Empire. And even today, when you visit its ruins, I have to say its ruins are impressive. You look at its ruins and you go, wow, this is amazing. But it is a, fail, a, a faint echo at, of course, what this city once was. So Ephesus was a city that had this tremendous harbor right on the Mediterranean Sea. So it meant that it was a place where trade for 
for Africa and, and the Middle East and Europe all could, could center around and meet. Ephesus had these amazing and huge and beautiful markets. It has, uh, and you can still, you can actually visit these homes today, a hillside lined with these beautiful homes with amazing artistry with just mosaic work throughout in the most ornate way in all these beautiful homes. Ephesus had this tremendous library uh, that was huge and, and beautiful in its own right. It had multiple theaters, one of which that, that still exists, uh, seats 25,000 people. Ephesus had many temples, including one that was especially big for the patron god of that city, Artemis. That, uh, that temple of Artemis is actually seen now as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It is huge. So that is all to say that in most every way that you could think of, politically, economically, financially, culturally, religiously, Ephesus was a city that was filled with power. But friends, when you think about the early Christian church in Ephesus, you have to know that the church knew none of that power. They were a small and marginal group. And if you'd asked anyone in first century Ephesus, what do you expect is going to happen with those Jesus followers, with the church, everyone, perhaps even those inside the church at times would have said, this is certainly something that will die out before too long. You can imagine it would have been tempting even for Christians to believe at times, yeah, the Christian gospel, the good news that Jesus is king, that's, it's great. It sounds nice. I'm, I'm happy to have that as a part of my life. But in the real world, in Ephesus, it is other forces that are going to win the day. Now, I bring up this particular example of what it could have been like for the church in Ephesus because I also think that that can be true for the church in Hinsdale and the church in Austin Oak Park. That for you and me, it might seem that it might be other forces that could win the day. That in our real lives, it might seem that it is perhaps economics that is going to win the day that it is politics, local or national or even international, that is going to win the day. It might seem that it is whether or not I have enough in the bank to pay rent and buy food at the end of the month that is going to win the day. It might seem that it is your health or the lack thereof that is going to win the day. It might seem that it is the violence in our cities that is going to win the day. It might seem for you that it is your struggle with a particular sin or a particular burden you bear that will win the day. That it is the visible things that are at work, at school, or at home, or in the workplace that will win the day. And friends, because that is so, because it seems that all those visible forces might be the ones that will win the day, we, as much as the church in Ephesus, desperately need Paul's prayer for ourselves that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to the actual reality, that the power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that is at work in and through the church, and that it is, in fact, He who will win the day. That is, as is beautifully portrayed in this picture above us, Jesus isn't seated, but it is a picture of Him ascended to heaven, reigning, that that is 
the power that will win the day. And there is nothing else, not economics, not health, not violence, not the relationship that is, is destroying your life or the relationship that you long for to fix your life. None of those things have a seat at God's right hand. It is only Jesus who has that seat and will win the day. So what does that mean for how the church ought to approach Christian mission? Well, it means for a church like the one in Ephesus. It means for a church like Trinity Hinsdale. It means for a church like Boulevard. It means for a humble group of broken sinners who struggle with doubt and selfishness and relationships and everything else that a group like ours, a group like ours can and should have a hope-filled vision for mission that is way beyond us. I think, for example, of the, uh, the vision statement that we at Boulevard have, that, that we uh, have landed on at Boulevard. We say it this way. We have a vision that the Austin Oak Park community would be renewed socially, spiritually, and culturally by the grace of Christ. Now, when I tell people uh, that vision that we have as a church uh, in our community, um, it often kind of gets like a a raised eyebrow (laughs) or a bit of a laugh. Um, And I I can feel that very much myself. Just saying that vision, I am talking about something that is way beyond us, right? We didn't come up with that vision by sort of taking an assessment of who we are as a church and the gifts that we bring to the table and summing that all up and say, okay, what can we do? Let Let that be the vision of what our mission is. No, we started with what is Jesus promised to do in our world. That is what the vision for mission is. The vision for mission that the church is called to is a vision for mission as great as Jesus' power. And that, of course, is why the church's mission is always one of witness. We are pointing out to the world, to ourselves and to the world, not ourselves, ultimately, not what we are going to accomplish, but we're pointing to one outside of ourselves, to the one seated in heaven and what he is going to accomplish. Right? As a church, we aren't inviting our, our neighbors to, to join us and to gather around primarily what we are doing, what we are excited about doing. No, we gather around and we invite our neighbors to join us primarily around what God has done and is doing in Christ. That is what we are about as a church. And that is the scope and the hope of the mission that we have, that God's resurrected power is at work in the church for the benefit of the world. So we have every reason to have the biggest hope possible in this world. So that's the first thing. The church ought to live out her mission in hope. A second thing that we get from the way Paul is is setting up, uh, describing the church and in Christ's power in this passage is that the church ought to live out her mission in humility. So the church is inevitably going to face resistance in her mission. That's because she represents a a message and a ministry of a king who is not a part of this world. And so inevitably there will be resistance. It's to be expected. Now the temptation for you and me when we face opposition is what? I think it's often to power up. 
We see the opposition coming, and everything in us wants to do a power grab. We want to pull the best rhetorical punches that we can to win the argument. We want to make it appear, appear like we have arrived, that we got all our stuff together, and that we are coming to the other from a position of strength. But friends, that is not how Christ sends his church into mission. He tells Peter, put away the sword. And he sends us into mission. Did you hear that? He sends us into mission. We might at times wish that he would send a better version of ourselves, a more confident version of ourselves, a, a, a version of ourselves that knew all the right answers, that, that didn't struggle with this or that sin or doubt into the world in mission. But that is not how, who God sends the mission. The fact is he sends us into mission. And he sends the churches that we comprise into mission. And if we're honest about the state of us and our churches, well, there is a lot of vulnerability, a lot of definitely not arrived in this, and a lot of weakness. But paradoxically, friends, it is exactly in those particular points that God says his mission shines most clearly. Let me give an illustration of this for us to think about it. So there is a, a neighbor of ours uh, on our block. Uh, she's an artist. She is, is also a relatively new mom. And uh, she was telling me that last summer, um, as she was, was doing her artwork, it was hard to, for her to get any of her work done because she had a toddler constantly at her side. So here's what she decided to do. She decided uh, that she would integrate her toddler's play into her own art creations. So the idea is that her toddler does, you know, whatever it is he naturally does. He, he scribbles with the crown. Um, he, uh, he, uh, he does finger painting. He, he tears up paper and crumples it up. He does whatever he does, right, with a little bit of guidance from mom, but he's going to do what he's going to do. And then what she does is she takes that and enfolds it into her own larger creation. Now, for me, uh, toddler art uh, has value. It does have some value in, uh, in representing a particular stage of life um, that a toddler is at, right? And so that's why uh, my wife and I always try to save a few representative pieces of toddler art so we can remember that particular stage. But honestly, what we do with the majority of it, and hey, we get like a half dozen pieces a day um, at this point, and please don't tell my children, is that when no one is looking, we send it right to the recycling bin, right? As a product, we're happy for it, you know, to have those few representative pieces to remember that stage of development. But as a product, we cast it into the recycling bin because it's not really of anything to any value to us. Now, the approach that my wife and I are taking is what we could call the easy approach. It's the approach of accepting or rejecting. But what our neighbor, the artist, does is that she has this creativity, and I have to say this patience, that enables her to actually integrate toddler scribbles into her own vision and her own craft. And what she does and what the product that she gets integrating the toddler scribbles is, is spectacularly beautiful. This is redemptive art. Now, it's not an exact parallel. But it is a little like how God uses the church in his mission. 
You see, he doesn't cast our failures aside and do his own thing apart from us, although he certainly has every right to do that, right? That would be the clean, easy thing for God to do. But no, rather what God does in his own mission is the much more difficult and costly and creative thing of taking us and taking what we do and redeeming it. And the result is spectacularly beautiful. And there's no clearer sign that I know of that way that God works than Jesus' own resurrection. Think about it. He did not just cast Jesus' dead body aside. He wasn't like, from now on, we're finished with the human body. He also didn't provide a replacement body for Jesus, right? He didn't leave that old, dead, pierced body in the grave and come up with a new, better, you know, version 2.0 of the human body. No, what he did was raise that dead body, resurrect that dead body, and redeem it, fill that body with life. And even now, Jesus ministers out of that renewed, redeemed, resurrected human body. And so it is with the mission of the church. So friends, we have every reason to, if I could put it this way, proudly do our mission in weakness, to proudly do our mission in humility. You know, the world says if you have your weakness, you've got to hide that. You've got to put your best foot forward. You've got to power up and have the appearance of having it all together. No, but as a church, we are called to lead in mission in our weakness, to put on display all the ways that we are broken and lacking because it is in those areas in particular that God has said His power is perfected, that He in particular can display the glories of His mission, the glories of Christ's reign, such that it's not only the message that we speak that communicates and bears testimony to the King who reigns, it is also the very means by which we speak it, in weakness and in humility, that bears testimony to the power of the King who reigns. So the church ought to live out her mission in hope and in humility. And finally, I want to close with this. The church ought to live out her mission as a new family. So when you take the power of Christ and you have that meet human weakness, power of Christ plus human weakness always equals new family. It's what we call the church. And so much of Ephesians, if you, if you get a chance today, I'd invite you to read. I mean, actually, you could read pretty much any letter in the New Testament. It would do the same for you. But since we're in Ephesians, I invite you, if you get a chance today, to, to just sit down and, and take 20, 30 minutes and read the book from beginning to end. Paul, throughout this whole letter, is talking about what does that new family look like? What does it look like when power of Christ meets human weakness? And we see that more and more is that that human weakness, those human individuals start to reflect corporately more and more the one who sits in heaven. So Paul talks in this letter about people who were once cynical starting to grow in gratitude and in hope and generosity. He talks about people who tend to harbor anger, and that, if we're honest, is many of us, that those who tend to harbor anger start amazingly to forgive one another because they know that they have been forgiven. 
Paul talks about people who naturally would have nothing to do with each other. Jews and Gentiles, poor and rich, black and white, type A and type B personality, young and old, dare I say it, liberals and conservatives. That people who would normally have nothing to do with each other, that they actually look at the other and start to say, that's my sister, that's my brother, that is someone who is fundamentally like me because we are in the same family. And I want to bear their burdens because they are brother and sister. Paul talks about people starting to honor their bodies as if they were temples of God. Not to see the body as an end-all voracious appetite that just needs to be satisfied on the one hand, nor to see the body as something that just needs to be cast off one day, but no, to see the body as a temple where God is at work and where he fills. Paul talks about people towards the end in chapters 5 and 6 of Ephesians that they start when they encounter the power of Jesus to start to see social relationships not as transactional, not as I will keep this up for as long as it serves my purposes, but no, they start to see the social relationships that they have as opportunities to serve one another. And as a result of that, they start to care for those that society has no use for. Well, historians tell us that these sorts of things that Paul is talking about actually was being lived out in the early church, that the church was known in the first century for these sorts of things. And historians, when they try to answer the the question of why so many pagan Romans ended up following this backwater religion led by this guy who was crucified as a criminal, Jesus of Nazareth. That's the big mystery of that part of history. Why did so many pagan Romans start following this Jesus of Nazareth? Many historians, in trying to explain it, say that it's because they saw a group of people following him who looked like this. And it was alien to them. It was strange. It didn't make sense. They had seen nothing about it before, nothing like that before. But in its alienness, it also spoke to them, and it said, this is showing us a way of life that we've actually been looking for all along, maybe without even knowing it. It's a way of life that testifies to a power that is outside of this world, and a power that actually gives us life in all the ways we desperately long for it, whether we know it or not. Leslie Newbegin, who's, who's someone who talked, um, wrote a lot about the mission of the church in the West in particular, he says that the church is a hermeneutic of the gospel. What he means, that, that word hermeneutic is a fancy way of saying that the church is an interpreter of the gospel to the world. That the church, as we live out our life in hope and in humble weakness, but as we do it together as a church family, that it actually puts in the most tangible of terms for the world to see an interpretation of what it means that Christ is risen and now reigns in heaven. In other words, the church is, we could say what Paul says here, like Jesus' visible body. And that Jesus happily wants this world to say, hey, if you want to know what it looks like, to live in my power. If you want to know what my reign looks like, I'm going to have you look at the church. This, friends, means that we cannot do the Christian mission as individuals. 
It's true, as individuals, God does have ways He has each of us serving Him in our lives, but that fundamentally we cannot do Christian mission as individuals. We can only do it as church. That's why, one of the reasons why, when Christian mission goes forth, that new churches are always planted. It's not just individual lives being transformed or individual aspects of the culture being transformed. No, it is always worshiping bodies of Christ that are formed. That's why, as it says in the front of your order of worship, and I, I love that picture and also the verse quoted in Philippians 1 there, that it is side by side that we strive for the faith of the gospel. So let me uh, pray for us that God would enable us by the spirit of power to do that. Father, we thank you for your mission in this world to make all things new. And we thank you a bit in, uh, in awe, perhaps a bit in terror, um, but also a bit in thanksgiving, that the means you have chosen to carry out this amazing and grand mission in our world is one of the most humble things we could possibly think of, a collection of people like us. Father, I want to pray uh, for this congregation, for, for Trinity Presbyterian Hinsdale, as I pray also for, for Boulevard Presbyterian, and for all your people, all your congregations throughout this world, that you would, as Paul prays, give us eyes in our heart to see the power that rose Jesus from the dead, and to know that that is the same power of hope that is at work in us and in the church for our sake and for the sake of this world, for whom Jesus gave his life. We pray it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.